Welcome to episode 263 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. So Shane, today we are talking filters, which uh, many people who know me well may be surprised to hear that I have a filter or some filters because they might think that I otherwise uh, go forward in life uh, without a filter. But um, Tom uh, and Dave Chapman uh, and a few others have been asking for a filter episode. So here we are. We're going to do a filter episode finally. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to talk about with filters. Uh, you know, you and I were having a little bit of banter just before we pressed record. Um, there's a lot of different ones out there. They all do different things. Um, when it comes to filters, I think you use them a little bit more than me. I, I do play with them a little bit, but you know, for me, I usually just leave them in the case cause I hate messing around with them, but there are some situations where they definitely enhance the view. And I think that's what we're going to really dive into today. Yeah. And you know, originally I had foreseen this as being a, a one of our short episodes in the summer and then other people were making suggestions we wanted to cover some different topics which is fine and as well you know i didn't really want to be limited to the 20 minute format because i really wanted to do this one unfiltered oh there you go <laughs> anyway so i was doing some digging around because i know we've talked about this before there is sort of a, a small con confusing uh, part about the filters and it seems like there's um, some ambiguity in the language so there's two types of filters so we'll, we'll talk about this and then get into it is that there's light, light pollution reduction filters or LPR filters and then there's the nebula line filters okay more appropriately we might call these broadband the LPR light pollution reduction filters are broadband and the narrowband filters are the ones that are uh, specifically focused on the certain spectral uh, parts uh, that a particular nebula will emit. So that's how it works. But, you know, in general, I've, I've uh, seen and heard, um, read that some people will refer to them all, they'll lump them all as light pollution filters, or they might lump them all as nebular, nebular filters. And so um, sometimes there can be sort of a mixing and, and matching of the language, but there kind of is two basic types. There's the one that is just meant to reduce uh, light pollution and, uh, and non-astronomy uh, light in the sky in general. And then there's the one uh, that the filters that are specific to uh, particular types or, uh, or, or sets of, of nebulous props is, is the way to put it. How does, how does that strike you? Yeah, I think that sounds like a, a, a the right way to view these filters. Yeah. So sometimes in the past, I might call like an O3 or an H-beta, I might call that a light pollution filter. I generally just call them light pollution or nebula filters, but uh, that, that is kind of mixing the language a little bit. But uh, I don't think it really matters too much. Typically, if people are are into filters, they're going to know what I'm talking about. If I say, oh, I had a light pollution filter, I was using an O3 or a nebula filter, I was using H-beta or whatever, uh, mm -hmm. they're going to know. Uh, they're going to know what uh, what I'm talking about. So, a good resource. There's there's a good resource for filters. One of the best, um, if if I can sort of toot our, our own horn, Shane is um, from the RASC, the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada's Observer's Handbook, and on pages 65 to 67. So you get a few pages there. Um, uh, Roy Bishop 
uh, greatly and, and very accurately details the types and the usage of these filters. So in a way, I've kind of loosely based this uh, around that, not only because it, it's an excellent, uh, very easily digestible article on filters, but also because um, I think I've read that article on, on the filters just about as much as any other uh, single piece of astronomy literature. Uh, typically I read it uh, multiple times uh, a year just because it, it is so well written and I'm looking for maybe some uh, particular piece of information. And I am a, a pretty big filter fan as, as you detailed. So uh, I, I do enjoy them quite a bit. So without further ado, when, uh, when you think of uh, a, a nebula filter or a light pollution reduction filter. Sometimes we're mostly thinking about like the human-made uh, source of light pollution. But Shane, uh, maybe I'll just uh, needle you and say, well, what are, other than human-made light pollution, what other um, light in the sky might we want to uh, filter out uh, so that we can have better views of, of nebula? Yeah, there's there's a lot of like kind of atmospheric stuff uh, that can play into this or, or things in the sky. Mm -hmm. um, you know, stuff that uh, can negatively impact your observing session, especially when you're in a darker site. Um, so stuff that can can cause you issues as a visual observer would be like aurora, air glow, uh, zodiacal light, um, and even some background starlight uh, yeah. that is out there. So, you know, these filters do help to filter that stuff out and yeah. enhance, you know, the nebula uh, that you're trying to observe. Yeah, because even from a really dark side, like when you and I have been down the grasslands and such, and Jupiter has been high and, and really bright as it is now, I mean, we can see like a mat, like if there's just even a small amount of haze, you'll see like a huge amount of scatter in the atmosphere. And that's like going through your whole night sky and uh, is is going to reduce the contrast that uh, that we so so much need in order to uh, to see these nebulae. For sure. And, you know, when, we, when you and I have talked about grasslands in the past, one of the things I've mentioned is um, there's not, there's no like human made light there. There's no real light pollution. Uh, but there's times where I've been sketching my notes on a notepad and my pen casts a shadow and that shadow is coming from the starlight. So, you know, under the darkest skies, even that becomes a little bit of an issue. Yeah. So the, the nebula and light pollution filters, these filters work by blocking uh, wavelengths of unwanted light. So we're not going to get into what a wavelength of light is uh, specifically, but basically um, light has a spectrum. Everybody's familiar with uh, the spectrum and, and sort of the rainbow of light. And because the nebula glow and people are familiar with uh, deep sky images showing uh, reds or greens, you know, whatever other colors that, that nebula may have, um, if you uh, keep those wavelengths of light and reject, you know, maybe like some of the high pressure sodium orange or some of the really, um, you know, whitish or purplish uh, light that might be generated from uh, light pollution or aurora, or what have you, then uh, then you're going to increase the visibility of uh, of those those other nebula. So maybe Shane, what are some of the types of nebula that uh, that people may uh, wish to to use these sort of filters on? Because it's not it's not going to work for every type of deep sky object, and you often see like the debate: Are these going to work for uh, galaxies or what are they going to work for, for exactly? 
Yeah, for the most part, uh, I, you know, I would stick to nebula, um, you know, star forming regions, emission nebula, uh, nebula uh, caused by like supernova remnants. Um, and then planetary nebula um, are the really the only targets that I would ever use uh, these filters for. Um, I guess there's an argument to be made that perhaps some of the light pollution reduction filters, uh, you know, maybe could be used on clusters and galaxies uh, if you're in your backyard. But, yeah. um, you know, I'm not sure how much of a bump you really get. Uh, you know, for, for dark sky observing, the, the best thing you can do if you really want like to increase what you're seeing is to get to a darker sky for sure. Yeah, no, exactly. And so our, um, these sort of nebula filters are not really going to work on galaxies. They're not really going to work so much on uh, open clusters. Um, and as well, they may not work so well on the reflection nebula, will they? Because the reflection nebula are reflecting starlight and these filters are, are actually one way or another uh, filtering out some of that background starlight. So uh, it, they may actually be more detrimental to uh, to starlight than, than to not. Although now I see that some people are using some of the new fancy um, CCD filters for, for perhaps uh, seeing uh, the reflection nebula. So anyway, there, there's some some cutting edge stuff that uh, that's coming out that can help people see in whatever uh, bandwidth they want. All right, so human vision is uh, is sensitive to certain wavelengths of light. And I kind of mentioned this uh, rainbow of the spectrum already, but if, if you can imagine this rainbow instead of the, the beautiful arc or perhaps a, a double arc, if you're so lucky to have a double rainbow, <laughs> um, you, you just imagine this uh, line and there's numbers along the line. So on the far left, we have, we have uh, purple, uh, transitioning slowly to like a, a light blue, to like a robin's egg blue, into like a blue green, into like a dark green, into a green orange, orange, and then orange into red, and then at the end we have red. And then along with those colors at the bottom, we have a set of numbers starting at 400 on the far left in the purple to 700 on the far right into the red. So these numbers are associated with the spectrum. And so when we refer to um, a number as a, I think it's a nanometer of light, uh, that is what uh, we are referring to. So um, the chart has a rainbow, violet, purple to red, and it goes from 400 to 700 with purple being on the far left and the uh, the far right would be 700. Right in the middle, around 500, we get to blue. And at 550, we have this sort of greenish color. And 550 is where the human vision is most optimally sensitive, at least uh, at night. So, uh, Shane, do you remember looking at deep sky? What, when, when you look at like the Orion Nebula through an unfiltered telescope, what kind of color, uh, what kind of colors might you see in the Orion or maybe some other nebula that, that you've seen just with the uh, unaided eye looking through your telescope? Well, typically, uh, you know, I think what most people would, would see is really just sort of a grayish tone, like just sort of a colorless tone, really. Um, yep. Now, under ideal conditions with uh, a large aperture or just a really good telescope, some people report, especially in the brighter nebula like uh, M42, 
some people will report seeing some tones of green and maybe even getting into like the purple pink tones. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't say that I've ever seen that. I, I've, I've detected some green uh, when I've had larger Dobsonian telescopes, but my, with my refractors, uh, it's typically just uh, like a colorless uh, light. Now it's quite bright and there's a lot of detail there, but um, I've not seen a lot of color. Yeah. So in these colors, these sort of whitish sort of green colors that we're seeing, and now sometimes what we're, we're perceiving may, maybe as white or grayish, it has actually a color tone to it. It's just, there's such, um, there, there, there's such feeble light in these things that we're not able to perceive the color. Kind of like you have your brightly lit room and then you turn out the lights and then slowly as your eyes become dark adapted, you can still see the room and everything and you'll see your table and and water bottle and keys on the on the desk like I have here, but you don't really perceive very much in the way of color, and it's sort of that that same sort of effect in the extreme. Um, but basically, the way that nebulae filters work is that nebulae emit strongly at uh, 486, which is sort of in like the blue uh, green uh, zone, or or in sort of the a little bit and maybe in the violet. Uh, although they appear red, uh, 496, which is definitely in that sort of uh, blue zone, and then in uh, 5001, which is very, very much in that uh, that same zone as well. And then we kind of perceive that um, perhaps as green, simply because our eye is really sensitive at uh, at the 550 uh, mark on the spectrum, or rate sort of uh, almost smacking, or not not in the middle, but sort of a good way along that. Uh, that rainbow that we talked about earlier. The, the 486 line is hydrogen beta, and then 496 and 501, uh, these are the two lines that we refer to as doubly ionized oxygen, otherwise abbreviated as O3, and things that have, you know we might be familiar with that, uh, that are emitting in this O3 or doubly ionized oxygen uh, bandwidths are the uh, swan and the veil. Nebulae. So not sure if you have any any comments on any of that, Shane, before we move ahead, but that's kind of in a nutshell how bandwidth uh, and, and how the light and the, the spectrum sort of work in relation to the nebula filters. Comments, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think what we'll probably get into here as we discuss these filters and um, is there either very specific usage due to the uh, light that it allows versus the light that it's trying to filter out? Mm -hmm. um, but it's also interesting to not always stick to the rules when it comes to these filters and yeah. multiple filters on the same object to see yeah. which view you prefer because these filters do change the views. And um, one of the nights that I was out at your dark site, you had your filter slide. So uh, you loaded it up with various uh, nebula filter uh, filters, and then you know the filter slide just made it super quick and easy to slide through and see how the views changed. And that was a, a real fun experiment because, yeah. um, again, you know the the nebula will take on a, a, some different characteristics or show different detail based on the filter you're using because of these narrow wavelengths that they transmit. Yeah. And it really used to be that there was only a, a set of maybe four or so uh, types of filters. You can get made by a small handful of companies, um, Lumicon, Thousand Oaks, and there would always seemingly be like one other company out there making nebula filters, but that was really it. 
and they would make a, a broadband filter that um, maybe could be used for astrophotography and for some visual, which would cut out things like street lights and some sky glow, but for the most part, let starlight and nebula light come through. And then there'd be uh, nebula filters for the H beta line. There'd be nebula filters for the O3 lines. Um, and that was really basically basically it. And they may have a combination of, of uh, the H beta and the O3, and they call that a UHC or an ultra high contrast filter. But now there's all these uh, fancy CCD filters, some of them uh, quite expensive. But when Tom was writing me, uh, writing us this week, and we, we were chatting back and forth, he recommended, I think it's like an Optolong CCD filter. Oh, this one works great at a dark sky site. And I was like, oh, I never even heard of this filter before using this particular type of CCD filter. And I was like, well, let's check out the uh, spectrum um, in relation to the, uh, the the spectral band pass in relation to you know, this presentation or this, this podcast that we're doing today. And, oh, yeah, there we go. So looked like it had great um, pass through on the parts of the spectrum where uh, the nebula are and where the human uh, eyes is going to perform uh, well as well. So you kind of got to look at those two things. You have to look at where the human eye performs as well as where the nebulae um, will emit. And then they, they do have to uh, have to match up because there's some uh, nebula filters, uh, for example, like hydrogen alpha. And uh, if you just got like a hydrogen alpha band pass, I, I forget what the number is on that, but uh, it's sort of beyond the spectrum that humans can easily see uh, mm -hmm. under a dark sky. So uh, some of those CCD um, filters just simply aren't going to work. But uh, if you read around on the internet, you can find where, where some folks perhaps like, like maybe Tom did the experiment or read it somewhere and they, they figured out that you can use uh, one or two particular types of filters like that, which is really cool to hear because I'm sure they give a, a different view than what you might get with a traditional H-beta, UHC or O3 type of filter. Yeah. Yeah. The whole world of these uh, CCD filters is intriguing uh, from a visual perspective. Like you said, some of them can be fairly expensive, but it's, uh, it, you know, I think people are starting to use more and more of these uh, unique or specialized filters uh, and find that they do help with the visual side of astronomy. So I'm, I'll be keeping close watch on the cloudy night forums and, and other sources too, to see if there's any real winners that come out of this analysis and uh, perhaps add some some more filters to the kit in the future. Yeah, I certainly do love them and and use them quite a bit. And I've got my eye on uh, on one 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 or two particular CCD filters and sort of hemming and hawing because uh, you know they aren't inexpensive or at least uh, two hundred dollars Canadian for me is not an inexpensive purchase. So I do kind of hem or haw over over some of these uh, some of these things. Okay, back to filters. Uh, the advantage of uh, these so called line filters, like in the uh, uh, 46 and and uh, those other two for the doubly ionized oxygen like I talked about earlier is that they allow only the light or mostly only the light from the nebula to pass through and what that means though is that it's going to dim the stars a great deal especially in small scopes and in fact when we were just talking to Mark Radici of Refreshing Views in our previous episode he actually talked about this without any prompting he's I said well, what filter do you like what were you doing your sketch of the veil with using the O3 or the UHC and he said he used the UHC because in the O3 um, he found that it dimmed the stars uh, too much and that he didn't like that view as much as as the UHC even though the O3 gave him slightly better contrast and a little bit better visibility of the nebula he felt that the view with the UHC was more pleasing to his eye. 
Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it is interesting, and probably another thing to mention here too is this is yet another one of these circumstances where I think filters are very uh, like a very personal decision, you know, and mm-hmm. and what somebody really enjoys, or if somebody really enjoys a particular filter and how it changes the view. Uh, others may not. Um, so this is a, another situation where if you can go observe with other folks, whether it's a star party or, or wherever it might be, uh, you may want to just try some of these filters too, to see how you like them before you make the decision to, to jump in and make a purchase. Yeah. So I think the reason why Mark really liked the UHC or the ultra high contrast filter is that it allows more light through in general. Mm-hmm. So it's it's allowing both the doubly oxygenized, uh, you know, uh, oxygen lines through or doubly ionized oxygen lines through. It's allowing the HB lines through. It's allowing some of the starlight through. It's blocking a lot of like the the light pollution from, um, you know, artificial lights and and maybe aurora and some of that stuff. But it's it's still allowing uh, quite a bit of light through. Not as much as just a broadband light pollution reduction filter. Um, so it's giving him some, some decent contrast, but one of the things, and so again, like you were saying, this is, this is where this comment is based on the notes or anything. Like you said, it's a very personal thing. And I found that by experimenting, sometimes you can have some pretty great views of a variety of objects. And you would think therefore that if you were going to buy a filter, and I think that it is generally good advice. If you own a smaller scope or you have a series of scopes, like an eight inch daub and maybe a, uh, like a 80 or 90 millimeter refractor or something like that, then you should buy the UHC. And I think probably getting the UHC is probably going to give you the best views and you're going to have the most utility out of uh, that particular filter. You're going to be able to see the most things with it. If you're just going to buy one and invest, I really think that the uh, UHC by Lumicon in the Gen 3 format is is probably the best filter. However, my caveat on this is that uh, my most used filter on my 50 millimeter uh, Borg scope chain that, that you cobbled together for me is the hydrogen beta filter, which is the most uh, extreme cutoff filter and lets in only for the most part the hydrogen beta uh, nebula and uh, and it blocks out most of the other light, including uh, reducing starlight by quite a bit. But from a dark site, I can still see lots of stars through my little 50 millimeter. Um, but uh, it really helps make the um, the H beta emitting nebulae shine, such as Barnard's Loop, such as the California Nebula, and uh, different targets like that. Just looks spectacular in the 50 millimeter telescope with the hydrogen beta filter on it. It's just like a perfect combination to my eye. It's not gonna be everybody's cup of tea, sort of reference to Mark there again, but you know, uh, that, that's just how, how I roll with it. Not sure if you have any comments on that. Well, I certainly agree with the UHC comment. Uh, if you're only going to buy one filter, it's probably the most, uh, it has the most utility for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, of all of my filters, that is the one that I use the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is because if you, <laughs> um, I, I just, because I don't use filters that much, I sometimes even forget, you know, which filter is the best one for this particular mm-hmm. object. So I just stick with the UHC because it's kind of a generalist. It'll work on just about yeah. Yeah, it's going to work on your H beta. It's going to work on your oath. You know, your 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 supernova remnants. It's going to you know, it's it's really the jack of all trades. And yeah. I mean, to be honest, like I always keep my UHC loaded, and then sometimes I have my H beta, and sometimes I have my O three, and sometimes I have 
um, you know, combination thereof. But the but the UHC is the one. It gives the more natural view, like Mark was saying, and then as well, like you were saying, um, it kind of does away with trying to sort out which filter is best um, for which object, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. And it is so specific to the object, the observer, the sky conditions, and uh, and so on and so forth that I do find that even when other filters are recommended, and we'll get to that here in a, in a moment, but even when other filters are recommended, the uh, sometimes the UHC, for whatever reason, seems to be the better performer on any given night. So, um, you know, if, if there is sort of an on-the-fence argument to be made for one filter over another, often the UHC uh, is pretty close to the O3 or uh, sometimes for your particular eyes and, and setting and, and conditions and target, then the UHC might actually win out uh, in, in favor of the O3. Even I've been kind of surprised just experimenting this summer with my filters, um, how much I've enjoyed the, the UHC, even though the O3 will often provide a better nebula view. Um, the UHC uh, certainly uh, is no slouch and, uh, and provides uh, 80 to 90% of, of what you get with the O3. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, and, you know, and, and why is this perhaps? All right. I'm going to, maybe we should do this. Do you, do you have the notes up, Shane? I got a bit here yep. about, uh, about Lumicon. And uh, I, I actually meant to mention this to you. And I don't mean to put you on the spot here too much, but because you're a little bit, you're more, you, you know, out of, out of the two of us, because this isn't meant to be a criticism or anything, out of the two of us, you're more of like the gearhead, I, I always like to think, in a way. Okay, yeah. I, think, I think that's fair. I, I really do think yeah, that's yeah. fair. I mean, you know, I always wanted to get a, a mini Borg 50 millimeter, but I, I just couldn't pull the trigger and, and go through the headache of sorting out all the parts. So I got to say that I've certainly appreciated uh, your work on that as, as well as a variety of other things. But this bit here from Lumicon, I thought maybe you, um, I just cut and pasted it in here. Maybe you could just sort of review it really quickly because this is a little bit more uh, gearhead oriented. <laughs> oh, just just about exit people. And, uh, yeah, yeah, the bit about the eggs. Yeah, but Lumicon, well, basically maybe I'll just read a little bit of yeah, the Yeah, go for it. Okay, so Lumicon is a, a manufacturer uh, now owned by Farpoint uh, Scientific and has uh, a good reputation for making excellent filters. They've been around since the 1980s and they have long published the following about exit pupil specifications when it comes to nebula and deep sky filters. Take it away, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so the exit pupil of a telescope is a measure of a specific magnification, which differs from absolute magnification and which determines the surface brightness of an extended object image. Uh, exit pupil diameter may be expressed as the quotient of eyepiece focal length divided by the telescope's focal ratio. For example, a 32 millimeter eyepiece used on an F10 telescope will have a 3.2 millimeter exit pupil. Uh, and each Lumicon filter has an optimum eyepiece exit pupil range, uh, which we will have to include in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. So they they go through, um, you know, basically like a broadband filter, yeah. and then uh, they go through, um, you know, the best exit pupils to use for for you know each type of filter. So with the broadband, they say um, in a light polluted sky, you can be around sort of like that one millimeter eggs people uh, maybe sort of plus or minus half a millimeter or so and then with the UHC you're in the one to four territory 
the O3 two to five millimeters for eggs and people and with the HP to three to seven, but then under a dark sky, they say for the broadband, you're one to four, for the UHC, you're two to six, O3, you're three to seven, and for the H beta, four to seven, so much larger. So do you want to just read that notice and then I'll, I'll pick it up. There's like a notice at the bottom there. Uh, yeah. So as filter bandpass decreases, optimum exit pupil size tends to increase. Uh, so to determine the best eyepiece focal length to use with a given filter, simply multiply the exit pupil value shown above by your telescope's focal ratio. For example, if you're using the Lumicon H beta filter at a dark site and your telescope has an F6 focal ratio, uh, the best range of eyepiece focal lengths to use with this filter is uh, four to seven times six. So 24 millimeter to 42 millimeter. Okay. So what is, so what does all this mean? We're going to, we're going to get into this a bit because um, so yesterday, Dave Chapman called on, on a couple matters. So one was sort of uh, our ASC calendar related. And then the other was he was asking about the exit pupil and why you might need to have a larger exit pupil or why exit pupil matters when it comes to nibbler filters. And I kind of read this a bit before, and I always just sort of had taken the sort of advice from other uh, sources and observers and kind of had run with that, but I hadn't really actually thought through why this is. So the reason is to allow you the greatest benefit of seeing the contrast enhancement of these filters, you want to use a larger exit pupil than maybe you would without the filters, so lower powers basically. And what these work to do in a very general way, and we'll get into the specifics here in a second, is these lower powers work to concentrate um, more sky onto the photosensing cells of the eye. So in the observer's handbook, in that section that I mentioned uh, earlier, I think pages 65 to 67, and they've been publishing this for a number of years. So you can, you can buy an old copy from somebody uh, in Canada or elsewhere selling an observer's handbook from 2017, and, and you can get a copy of this for $5. It's well worth it. Um, in the observer's handbook, Roy Bishop references an exit people of about five millimeters as ideal for H-beta filters. As well, uh, Barbara Wilson, who was uh, a prominent visual observer and, and just passed away uh, a few years ago, uh, she also called the five millimeter exit pupil um, the magic horse head number for using the H-beta filter with. So uh, why is this? So I think uh, before I had said maybe four millimeters, but four millimeters, five millimeters, it's, it's in that range of say mm -hmm. four to five millimeters. Um, or maybe even slightly larger eggs pupils. Uh, but uh, Bishop uh, actually references another article by Johnson and Roberts on page 57 of the Observer's Handbook. I think this is a more recent article, and they're talking about detectable object size versus contrast. And they note that because the H-beta and O3 dim everything um, by about uh, two and a half magnitudes, including the nebula that you're trying to observe, uh, that in order to restore the luminance for detectability versus size, we must lower the magnification and thus the exit pupil. So this greatly varies depending on the target's luminosity, size, sky conditions. So experimentation is advised, but I have found this as well, that looking uh, at objects using the H-beta filter, using uh, exit pupils between four and seven millimeters, just as recommended by um, Roy Bishop, uh, 
and, and these two folks, as well as uh, Barbara Wilson, um, my experimentation in the field has, uh, has yielded the same results. So Shane, kind of curious what you might think of, uh, of that information. Well, it's something that I'll store in the memory bank for sure. Um, again, when I've used filters in the past, which isn't a ton, um, I'm really just throwing a filter in and not worrying an awful lot about exit pupil, but certainly uh, makes a lot of sense to make sure you're getting as much light as what's needed into your eyeball to uh, give the best view of whatever object you're looking at. Yeah. Now, I think those articles are a few years old. And, and as we've mentioned, there's been some uh, changes in the filter landscape. A um, couple of things. Uh, one is that we have these new CCD filters. So they may behave uh, slightly differently. And uh, I haven't tried those, Shane. Uh, not sure. Have you, have you tried any of these new CCD filters that people seem to be using a bit? No, I have not. Uh, I don't own any and I haven't been around anyone that owns, uh, owns them. So no, I haven't. Yeah, this is something that's only really gotten on my radar over the past year or so. And, uh, you know, there, and there's sort of scant reports. And some of the first ones people were saying they kind of sort of work. So I was pretty um, reluctant to, to jump on it. And then it seems like uh, the more recent ones, uh, people have been more enthusiastic on. So it's kind of uh, uh, been raised a, a bit higher on my radar, perhaps uh, as a purchase. So that's one thing is that we have these new filters that uh, that may potentially um, work slightly differently than these, these older, more traditional filters and uh, more experimentation by the larger amateur community is... Uh, is going to be something interesting to follow. The other is that, and I've noticed this because I went from older filters. I had older, um, just uh, Orion branded um, UHC, O3, and H beta filters. And I switched to the uh, what are called Generation 3 or Lumicon Gen 3 and O3 and UHC, as well as the uh, Teleview Nebview Star or the Nebbuster, as I like to call it, and made by, I think, Astronomics. And, and there may be some sort of interplay between Lumicon, Teleview, and Astronomics, uh, all three. Um, but from what I was reading online, for people that are that are doing uh, more involved testing than, than you and I certainly do, Shane, is that they've been getting close to uh, 98 to 90, 99% transmission at the mm -hmm. respective uh, wavelengths, which I think back in the day, if I, if I recall correctly, and I could be wrong here, but I think if you had a good filter, you might be just over 90%. And then uh, some of the filters were into the 80s. So, uh, you know, that is a, a pretty significant uh, bump. And even just comparing my older filters to these new ones, um, the difference is, is quite remarkable. Like, for example, the, uh, the view of the veil through my new O3, yeah, I mean, it looks bright. Like mm -hmm. in my four-inch four telescope, it looks really bright and quite detailed um, compared to my O3 filter in my five-inch telescope. So, uh, you know, I can see better and more detail and apparently brighter in a smaller telescope um, under, under these skies than, than I can on a slightly larger telescope using the, the older filters. So I, I've been kind of surprised at how apparent, uh, how apparent that is. So, uh, and then the other is that the uh, Tele-VH beta, um, 
you know, seems to to report the best as far as H beta from from reputable reviewers. And and again, it seems like there's a link between Teleview and Astronomic, and uh, and as well perhaps Lumicon. But uh, maybe Lumicon is, is their own thing. I, I don't know. Um, but certainly, my testing reveals that these Generation Three or these newer filters with uh, high transmission certainly uh, provide a, a significant uh, improvement over the uh, the older versions that I've owned and looked through over the years. Yeah, I recently, uh, well, last year, I purchased the new Teleview Nebustar, um, which is made by Astronomics, I believe, and it's their UHC filter. Um, I bought it an inch and a quarter, but I haven't really used it too much to see how how much it is improved over uh, my older UHC filters. My my previous one was a Lumicon, and that one was like, uh, it might be a Gen 1, like it was quite old. So um, I'm sure that I'll be impressed when I look through it uh, and see the differences. Yeah, I, I really hemmed and hawed over over getting the Gen 3s because I think from time to time you can still find or even the manufacturers must find an old stock of them. And I thought, well, I just kind of wanted to refresh my my filters are getting kind of old anyway. I've had them for over two decades and they, they've really seen a lot of uh, rough night air and, and various conditions. So I was just looking to refresh them and uh, I thought, oh, well, shoot, I'll spend the extra. It wasn't that much. It was like an extra 30 or 40 bucks. But I thought I'll just spend the extra thirty or forty dollars just to see what all the fuss is about. But yeah, I was really kind of surprised to to notice the improvement. It was sort of like, oh, you know, that is an improvement. You know, kind of kind of surprising to uh, to actually see what that looks like. So one of the things uh, I mentioned is the RASC Observer's Handbook. Like I said, there's a few articles in there. I think are well worth reading. And you know, the more recent years, you can actually buy a discounted um, 2022 handbook. And uh, the only thing you're going to miss if you buy an old handbook from the RESC is that it's not going to have your uh, monthly night sky events. Um, and it's not going to have the most, uh, you know, upcoming solar eclipses, lunar eclipses, that sort of thing. But I'll have all, all these base uh, articles in there. I think they're about nine bucks now on sale from the RESC. And then... Um, one of the other resources, which is super handy, Shane, I think you actually had a printout of this at one point, is David Neesley, who's from Nebraska, but had posted extensively on cloudy nights about nebula filters. He actually had run through in-depth comparison uh, over the years and has a number of articles and spreadsheets and that available both on cloudy nights and on uh, some of the Nebraska amateur sites about uh, which filters uh, he determined worked best for um, for the for m- Virtually, you know, I think several hundred uh, nebula objects in the nighttime sky. Yeah. um, Of all of the, like, you know, reviews and opinions that are out there, um, some of the work that has been done comparing these different uh, deep sky filters or nebula filters, really, uh, some of that, some of those uh, comparisons have been very well done. And and I really enjoy reading about them because there's, uh, you know, a little bit of science in, in the approach that's taken. And, and I, uh, I, again, I just appreciate somebody taking the time, uh, as well as making the investment in these filters and then yeah. doing all this testing to tell us about what they found. Yeah. And I think David Neasley is, is, uh, sort of a cornerstone, um, member of, of the amateur community. And man, I, I'd love to meet that guy sometime. <laughs> Um, because I certainly have used his, uh, his, uh, set of reference objects, for uh, which filter to try on uh, on which object on any given night because like you were saying it can be a bit of a hassle 
to uh, to be swapping filters in and out. Oh, this this object I should be using an O3 mm-hmm. on, not a UHC. And then and then a few weeks later, you read about uh, the UHC maybe giving a more pleasing view, and oh, I should have tried it that night, kind of thing. So can sort of help you uh, help make those determinations uh, before you go out and do your observing session. One of the other resources, Shane, I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this as well, and I, I like this too. Um, which is in Interstellarum, in the Star Atlas Interstellarum. And I think you've got a copy of this as well, right? I do, yep. In there, I'm not sure if you noticed this, but they have um, little letters embedded in the um, outlines of the nebulae. And they actually will guide you towards uh, which filter uh, they have determined through one means or another should work best for uh, for the particular object that you might be going for. Oh, really? I'll have to take a look. I wasn't aware that that was in there. Yeah. So they'll have like U for UHC, they'll have an O for O3, they'll have H for H beta. And uh, that has been uh, pretty handy uh, as well. So there's there's a few resources. I think, um, like I said, you can buy uh, a 2022 edition of the Observer's Handbook for uh, $8.95 Canadian. I, I wrote them last night because they're, they're, they've chosen the wrong um, shipping selections with our new uh, providers. So um, hopefully they can fix that shortly because I think the, the postage shipping on it is too much. It shouldn't be more than a uh, five or six bucks. Um, so for anyway, for 14 or 15 bucks, you should be able to get a copy of the uh, RESC Observer's Handbook from this this past year, which will be out of date very shortly, but it has all those base articles. Um, you can always buy a new edition for 2023 if you're going to buy one anyway. It's probably what I would do. And then you could kind of see how, how you use the Observer's Handbook, whether it's something you want to do in the future or, or just sort of keep on the shelf for those uh, legacy articles, including articles by by the person speaking now. And then um, Interstellarum, I think is super handy if people aren't using that. I think that's in a way my go-to star atlas for the most oh. part is the one that I use. I really like it, lays out flat, spiral bound, reasonably expensive, I think it's around a hundred something Canadian dollars. And then uh, they actually do have an introduction bit about filters and then they've marked all the uh, nebula with uh, their recommendation for the filter. And then the other thing I'm going to recommend, and this is one thing is, as you mentioned, Shane, that uh, that I do uh, from time to time is I have a multiple filter selector. And these things uh, come in a few different varieties. I have uh, what I consider a little bit of an old school one, which uh, basically has a tray. You load your filters into it. They sit out in the night air around your eyepiece, which isn't the best. But what you can do is simply just uh, push them through, uh, has four slots on mine. So I leave one slot open. I put a UHC, O3, and H beta in there. And then I can ratchet through those three filters plus the open slot, which allows uh, an unfiltered view. And and I can kind of very quickly rotate through and uh, see the differences that the uh, the different filters may may provide as some uh, either hunting for an object or doing sketches or or what have you yeah it's a super handy thing something i've considered purchasing myself is a filter drawer so uh, you know it often just inserts between like the diagonal and your telescope and then mm-hmm. you can basically you you have this little slot or a drawer that you can slide uh, filters in and out of so you can mm-hmm. go between no filter and filter or if you have a number of filters you mount them in these uh, inserts and then you just put it in the drawer and you're you know you're 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 able to switch these things in and out with basically no hassle 
Yeah, I think as well, there are two-inch filter wheels. That's one thing I've been kind of curious about because I do get a bit concerned, especially if I'm observing with other people to use the multiple filters. Like people get out the eyepiece, start talking, whatever, and suddenly you've got, uh, you know, dust and other things collecting on the on the filters. And also the downside with my filter selector is, um, I'm not really sure if this matters too much. I, I don't know that it does, but the filters are mounted upside down um so that you know typically when you're threading the filter in you have the threads um pointing um towards the eyepiece um you know the exit people and 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 you know the non-threaded is where the light is going to pass through well with mine um they're upside down so you have the threaded part uh, sort of facing out the light path and the unthreaded part facing back towards the exit people of of the eyepiece so uh, that may uh, somewhat impede the views. Although in comparison, back and forth, I haven't really noticed that. Um, but but you know that could be uh, that could be a limiting factor in uh, in that technology. Whereas I think with the filter wheels, they might not do it as much. And you can't really get these filter drawers uh, as easily any or no, so not the filter drawers, but the the filter slides like I have or whatever you want to call them. Anyway, mm -hmm. I do have a, an inch and a quarter filter wheel. And oh, just cool. a, a word of caution to anybody that may want to purchase one is it does bump out your focus point quite a bit. So if you're using an eyepiece that uh, requires some inward focus travel, uh, you may not come to focus. And I struggled with pretty much every telescope that I've used uh, this filter wheel on. And the only way that I can uh, use it successfully is so it all has like it has a bunch of the T2 threaded attachments for the nose piece as well as the um, uh, the eyepiece holder. Um, the only way I can get it to work is if I remove the nose piece holder and attach it directly to my Bader uh, diagonal. Um, which shortens it substantially like the light path. And then I can get eyepieces to focus, but it's kind of a pain to use it in that configuration and, and to set it up. So uh, to, you know, my experience with the filter wheel is that it just collects dust because it doesn't work that well for me. But if you have eyepieces where the focus point is further out, it, you may not be impacted by it. Yeah. So it is a good point. Even with my multiple filter selector, um, it does tend to push the, the eyepiece, uh, you know, higher up into the light path. So definitely the focal point is pretty high. Uh, just fortunately with my gear, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm kind of, um, set up so that I can handle like pretty wide ranges of focuses. I think you are, um, to a certain extent as well. I think you use some, some more adapters than I do, but in all my scopes, I can, uh, I can use that, uh, that uh, multiple filter selector, though I can't remember if I've used it in my 60 or not. That one doesn't have as much focal range, but my TAC um, 4 inch, my 100 DC, it has tons of focal range, as does my Borg and the little. Um, I've even used it on the little uh, 50 millimeter Borg. I think I have some photos of that somewhere with a with a Pentax 40 sitting out of it. So, yeah, that's kind of how. Uh, how I've been uh, experimenting a bit, especially uh, the past week. I, I headed out here um, on Monday, and I was I was using the multiple filter selector to observe uh, planetary nebula, for example, and as well as the uh, the Veil Nebula and, and uh, the Cocoon Nebula, stuff like that. Um, yeah, and yeah, North American too. I think if I didn't mention it, so it can be super handy to have those uh, 
those different filters and to be able to kind of ratchet through them in pretty quick order to to take in the slightly different views. I find it really useful, especially for uh, for sketching. All right, Shane, any anything to uh, add before we uh, close this one out? No, no, I think this is a good discussion on filters and uh, hopefully it helps some folks out there make decisions about which ones to buy or use. Yeah, and just before we go, I just want to thank Tom again. Uh, he did uh, send some of his recommendations. Um, the one that that he's recommending um, that works well for him, which is one of these new CCDs, is the Optolong L-Enhance. And he states that he has had good results at uh, dark sky sites using that filter and his 14-inch f2.6, um, which he sent me some photos of. Pretty cool scope. And that uh, at home, um, under under light pollution in uh, southern Ontario, he uh, he finds that the Bader Better Moon and Sky Glow filter, which I also own and uh, and recommend, is uh, a relatively inexpensive and uh, and and great filter for uh, for reducing just uh, moderate levels of light pollution. And and I can't agree more with uh, with Tom's recommendation on the uh, Batter Moon and Sky Glow filter. It's certainly uh, one of the more broadband filters I think that you can get. So it allows tons of light through, but it basically just rejects um, some of the uh, light pollution from, from the city. I think that's just about it. It just takes out a very small amount of light. And so especially if you have a lot of light pollution like Tom has and a uh, he has got a pretty good size scope uh, or if you have small scopes and you're you're observing from in or, or very near the city um, it, it can work well in fact many nights if if i'm just going to observe maybe 10 or 15 minutes out of town i will just thread in the moon and sky glow filter before i put my diagonal in the case uh, and head out and i'll just leave it in all night yeah yeah um typically if i do use a filter that's my approach i will just observe you know a certain class of object leave the filter in the whole night or for a period of time just so i'm not swapping in and out okay anything else to uh to add to this uh, unfiltered episode of actual astronomy no nothing else chris thanks all right well thanks uh, as well to dave chapman for uh, for his call and, and question uh, there that that kind of um, allowed me to get a little bit more educated on why the exit pupil uh, does impact the uh, visibility of uh, of nebulae when viewed using uh, light filters and thanks to you shane and everybody else for listening and be sure to subscribe in your pod catching software and you can always send us your show show suggestions observations and any other comments to actualastronomy at gmail.com thanks again for listening everybody thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show if you are interested in more information would like to contact us or if you would like to support the podcast check out our website actualastronomy.com <laughs>